Okay, here we go. Today is Sunday, July 12th, 2020, and this is episode 253 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Uh, new phone, who dis? <laughs> it has been a while, hasn't it? <laughs> How are you, sir? I am very, very busy. I, you know, I it's been a it's been a kind of a tumultuous few weeks slash months i had a, a pretty significant health issue although not nearly of the scale of yours and uh, i started a new job which i think many people already know and that has been keeping me quite occupied yeah you've been crazy busy whereas i on the other hand oddly have been just kind of not that busy so i mean yeah i, I have a job and i work but you know, COVID has driven I, a lot of boredom. I've seen you making furniture. I mean, I know because <laughs> that's all I need is another expensive hobby. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but I'm glad that your health issue got cleared up, and it's not a competition. What's up with that? Come uh, on now. I know. I know. So anyway, behind me, yeah. mostly, and yeah. we can move forward now. And your new job is insanely busy. Yeah, um, it has been really enlightening uh, to to be a CISO, right? It's one of those kind of pinnacle goals in a in in a career, and then you get there and you're like, oh gosh, am I the right person for this? <laughs> uh, so it's a more like more uh, aggressive imposter syndrome. It is a, imposter syndrome on. On uh, on steroids, yes. And so, if I recall, you and I started at the same point about the same time in our careers. And now you're a CISO at a big company, and I'm just kind of bopping around. I'm trying not to think about that too much because I might take it personally and, and have to go cry for a little while. <laughs> it's, you know, it, I, I am pretty well convinced that a lot of you know a lot of success in careers has to do with just being at the right place at the right time well and you're also politically more astute than i am i i i have been known to voice my opinion a little too freely you know some organizations value that so i will will say that if they're hiring look me up (laughs) fair enough (laughs) all right but um just a reminder oh go ahead Sorry. I was going to say it's 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 good we got to do a show and I'm glad you're feeling better and do you, do you think your your crazy workload's going to allow it, us to do shows on the regular? Or? Yeah, I think so. It's um you know part of, part of it is adjusting, right? So you got to you have to adjust to the to the level of um of work and sometimes that that takes some time and it has taken time for me but now I feel like I'm got, you know, I'm getting getting under control now the real question is now that you've reached the pinnacle of the security leadership realm and you've had the extensive management lobotomy 
are you going to have anything relevant to add to our conversations now that you're so far divorced from the actual tech? I will. I mean, admit, or are you just going to? I will boil admit. it all down to budgets and staffing and scorecards, and politics and scorecards, scorecards. Yeah, right? yeah, Ex- exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to have to remind you what TCPIP is, aren't I? Wait, what's what did you just say? Right. Nothing important. Yeah. We've got a guy who handles that for you. It's okay. <laughs> I will say it, it's been very humbling to to be in, in that kind of role, and I f- am very appreciative to have the opportunity. So, um, but, you know. I, I so in terms of like what, you know, the I, I think the only place to go next is consulting, right? Like, you know, that's that that's where CISO seems like that's where CISOs end up, you know, they go to die, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Consulting or or they get into, you know, orchid farming. True. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can see that. I can definitely see that happening. All right, so um, but you know, before my brain atrophies any further, let's go ahead and get into some stories and a reminder that the well, thoughts and opinions are ours and do, do not represent those of our employers. Yep, yeah, I'm just going to say that because I interrupted you earlier. So no, no, there all good, go. all good. So our first story tonight comes from SecurityInformed.com, a site that I have never heard of before, but uh, pretty interesting article. Although you know, it's I think it's yet another um, vendor marketing. F- Piece, but this uh, again uh, lines up with my availability bias. Uh, the the title here is Intruder. This is not Intruder is the name of the company. Just so we're clear, Intruder reveals its research show, shows MongoDB databases breached within 13 hours of being connected to the internet. Um, which I think on average, on, on average, which I think undersells the fact that the fastest breach happened in nine minutes, and this was based on. A honeypot, honeypots run by this company called Intruder, and um, I, I can tell you, MongoDB. Um, I've seen a lot of instances where MongoDB exposed to the internet is, in fact, um, compromised in a, you know spectacularly fast fashion, and um, and the reason is that they're by default they're quite insecure. So. Is this just a, a an unpatched version, or just it's not a matter of patch level; it's a matter of setup. It's that config, makes them it's, it, Well, I think it's a bit of both, but in in okay. large measure, it's configuration. So, so know. like many things, if you set it up properly, it's uh, secure. There's nothing absolutely. There's nothing that you know. We're not picking a MongoDB that they're permanently insecure. You just have to know what you're doing. Correct. I I would yeah. I would go so far as to say, MongoDB could do a lot more for its user base by making its configuration more secure by default. Um, but in doing so, you end up. I, I I will say I don't think MongoDB was ever envisioned to be placed right out on the internet, and and so I think that's one of the reasons we see what what's going on right but but at the same time it's an incredibly useful tool um and you know, in the world of cloud with you know for relatively cheap um you know disk space cheap and fast disk space uh they end up being um well that and you know traditional it departments 
tend not to like to um, you know to have to provision on the fly large amounts of storage for some pet project. But if you know if you have a relationship with a cloud provider, you can plunk down a credit card and get what you want pretty quick and load it all up with you know customer data and before you know it, you're ransomwareed. So the evolution of shadow IT to the nth degree. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is, you know, this is, a, a, I think, a very, and it's not, by the way, it's not just MongoDB, right? There's there's a bunch of different NoSQL type databases where we see this. I've, you know, I've even seen it with Postgres. You, you well, set up, we could you take misconfigure it. any kind of database and you stick it on the internet, it's going to get owned. Yeah, we, we could abstract it even further and, I mean, look at the many, 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 many organizations whose S3 buckets have been popped because of poor configuration. Yeah, it's really no different than that. Yeah, I mean, it's no, there's nothing inherently wrong with using S3 buckets. It's you just have to know how to secure them properly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, so this is the reason I, I, I wanted to, to raise this up. I, I, I see this actually quite a lot, uh, especially with organizations operating in the cloud you know where there tends not to be a uh, you know f- a fence to keep the marauding hordes from the internet connecting to your your uh, mongodb database um i you know i've become increasingly convinced that you you know, you, men- you mentioned the concept of shadow it that organizations really have to find a way to get their hands around Assessing when the business, you know, when people in the business go out and set up infrastructure like this, because it, you know, in this particular case, you know, they're saying nine minutes. I mean, that that is not not a long time. Yeah, in the traditional data center environment, you've got a whole bunch of bureaucracy and red tape that would capture this sort of risk typically like we're not going to open up that firewall port <laughs> until we've gone through our checklist to make sure it's secure whatever it is or you know there there's risk gates if you will in a traditional IT environment but like we said earlier we said many times in the cloud environment hey you know you you have a credit card and you've got a budget there's nothing to stop you what i have seen some companies do is they've bought a vendor that scrubs their web proxy logs for people going to known SaaS or cloud providers right. and presents a report of, hey, here's who's going where. And, you know, you can then detect if somebody's using a cloud provider that you're really aware of or aren't involved with. Or, you know, it's not a perfect solution, but it might be one option. I, I think it's a very good idea. I mean, if, especially if you're a company who has, you know, has employees who are, apt to do that sort of thing it, it's i think it, i think it is a very good idea i mean assuming you've got folks going through a web proxy i mean it gets a lot more complicated with the distributed workforce and oh, uh, remote time, workers with split tunneling and, times of uh, covid yeah absolutely yeah then you know i, I don't know I, I honestly don't know if there are tools you could push to an endpoint that would do the same sort of analysis there might be there probably is if not a business idea um yeah. you know it's a uh, and it's funny too because we, we were talking before the show briefly about the challenges of network security tools being able to look at encrypted traffic and how that's getting harder and harder uh, and how that's pushing a lot of what was traditionally a network-based detection tool to endpoints. 
which also then somewhat helps the the concept of like a zero trust model and that sort of thing. But it makes you wonder, you know, if we're going to keep applying more and more controls to the endpoints. But people already pushed back on that because of the amount of load or perceived load that these various agents and services and such put on the endpoints. Yeah. Um, plus, if you're, you know, I mean, so what do we know about endpoints, right? We, if if it if something happens there. And you, you've put all of your, you put all of your controls there. It's, how do you trust it? Yeah, how how do you trust it? So, yeah. it's a. It, there, I don't know that there's a great solution right now. Um, I th- I think the bump in the wire has many has many problems, and it's going to continue to have more. Not and by the way, not all of which are technical, right? There, there's a lot of data privacy um, issues with this. But I think this kind of we look at the bigger picture of this particular article, it exposes or is a good example of something I think many companies are going to wrestle with, which is we've fully democratized the idea of your IT department. Now, anybody can set up an IT department by outsourcing it to a cloud. And a lot of those folks who are doing it may not have the understanding of the regulatory compliance or legal ramifications of what they're doing. And then expose companies to a crap ton of risk they're probably not used to. Mm, uh, and, and I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer of, you know, don't take away my toys, you know, get out of my sandbox. It's a, I have seen it over and over and over again. And frankly, especially with sales teams and marketing teams, when they're incentivized to hit their numbers, they're really good at sort of bending the rules, to put it nicely. And, uh, oh boy, good luck. Yeah, yeah. There, by the way, there's. I think there's other pitfalls with shadow IT that are maybe not quite so apparent, especially when you're when you when you start talking about regulations like the GDPR and the CCPA in California and the LGPD down in Brazil and others that are coming online. You know, with this democratized IT and and kind of the pervasiveness of of the you know, the data scientist type role, you know, anybody can now go out and learn data science, which I think is a good thing, by the way. But, you know, the, there's, I think, a, you know, a, a thought that, hey, we can take data that we have about our customers and we can slice it and dice it and smash it against other things to figure out how, you know, how to sell more or, or do, you know, do other things. And that can get you into a lot of trouble, even if there isn't a data breach. Uh, even if, even if they, you know, yeah. the, the groups who do this, you know, s- properly secure it. If they're not, if they're not getting the right kind of permission and and whatnot from the data subjects, it's it can still open your organization to a really significant amount of liability. So said like a manager. <laughs> All right, moving on to the next story, which comes from ZDNet. The title here is Hackers Are Trying to Steal Admin Passwords from F5 Big IP Devices. Now, this is a couple of weeks old at this point, but I thought it was worthwhile bringing up because this is a, a pretty large problem. Uh, and it's not just F5 Big IP. There's been a kind of a... a, a well, since, since this story was written, there was another issue with... Um, uh, the Citrix Netscaler family. Uh, yeah, we've seen a we've seen a raft of of things that are internet facing having challenges like 
a bunch of remote access tools for uh, Pulse Secure, Palo Alto. Both their VPN clients had issues and servers. Now Citrix and F5. It's it's been interesting this year for that stuff. Yeah, and these these devices I, I think are particularly problematic. Uh, in in this particular article, I talk about how uh, the these researchers saw attacks happening within three days of of the announcement of the of of the issue. Um, and you know, you, you you have to wonder how many devices are going to be unpatched, you know, for some period of time. And we know from you know from the 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 original, well, I shouldn't say original, but the the Citrix Netscaler issue. I think we talked about this last time on the show. There was some news about how you know, Citrix Netscaler devices were were um, were compromised in in mass. Uh, in the in the kind of chaotic period between when the vulnerability was discovered and when the final you know when the actual patch was finally put out, there was if, right. you, if you recall, there was a like kind of a goat rodeo of of stuff going on where, where you know where the where Citrix had released mitigation information and then later retracted that because it didn't actually work and I think there was a patch that didn't work and and so on and so forth so. Um, but you know, these things tend to demark your your network, and so if a, if an adversary ends up on them, they it, you know they often, especially you know if, if they've found a way to maintain persistence. And in the case of this story, the you know the the deal is that the adversaries are trying to steal the administrative password while they actually have access uh, to the system, so that they can maintain that persistence. But if the adversaries can maintain persistence, that device can often provide a, you know, a way into, you know, deeper into the network. And they go on to point out that some of the ransomware gangs are actually using this very technique, especially in the pulse secure VPN, where they would compromise the device. And then even after the device got patched, they still had persistence. And then later they came along and, and did their, um, you know, they, Which isn't yeah. an interesting problem of, yeah, you patch, but if you don't know you're already compromised, that patch does nothing to kick out the folks who've already established a foothold. Exactly. And, and you know, that's a whole other interesting problem that our most of our patch maintenance methodologies don't address. Yeah. You know, there's... Yeah, right. And then, you know, in the case, of, the, uh, the case of the Citrix, the Citrix issue... There wasn't a patch, even if you wanted to patch, even if you were able right. to patch within minutes, it wouldn't have worked. Right. Now, the the only sort of upside, I think, on this F5, the way I was reading it, I'm not 100% certain, but I think this was on the admin interface. It is, yes. Which, if you're following best practices, shouldn't be exposed to the internet. Amen There's a that. lot of ifs there. There's a lot of ifs. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. Um, so it isn't just the the interface that's meant to be exposed to the internet to handle that incoming traffic from anonymous users on the internet. If you had followed best practices, is not exploitable. Am I understanding that correctly? On on this particular F five vulnerability, yes. On the on that okay. the last Citrix Netscaler. No, vulnerability, Citrix. Yeah, it was different. It yeah. was it was different. Was, right. Yeah, and that was you know what you expose for quote unquote secure access to your environment. Right. And. Yeah. yeah, so that'll teach you. The the other issue I think 
is these devices are embedded. They're embedded devices, and you can kind of think of them as no user serviceable parts inside. You know, you can't typically run security agents and whatnot on them. Yeah. Yeah, you're not and, yeah, you're not gonna put your own agent on it. You're not gonna yeah. So so you're you know, you're a little inhibited. I think you can collect logs from them and whatnot, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna be able to detect that something bad happened. If so, the box has popped, how do you know what the log how trustable are the logs? Right? Well What's you'd have the to, IOC I mean, around it. Yeah, you'd have to catch you'd have to get the logs. As with all other systems, right? You can't trust. You can never trust the logs on the system. You have to get those logs off on onto some other system. So, to me, what that tells me is you have to architect with the concept that your perimeter-facing gear will eventually be popped. And how do you mitigate that risk to limit the spread? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Which is much easier said than done, obviously. But well, I, I, absolutely, absolutely. But but it's not impossible, and this just points out that it is important to do. And and look, well, security is hard. Role, security is hard. In your role, you can just you know call up one of your guys and say, "I don't care, just get it done." Oh please, yeah, that's exactly what look, it's like. I'm the boss. You're the minion. <laughs> I don't want to hear your excuses. Just call the vendor and figure it out. That's right? Exactly. That's, that's what managers do, right? Right. That's true. That's, that's, what, that's exactly what they I gotta do. Go, I got to go play golf with the CEO, and I'll get back to you. That's exactly how it is. You're right. You're, you're, yeah, yeah. You, you, you nailed it. I mean, you got the CISO role spot on. <laughs> you're not going to invite me to the show anymore, are you? This is my last <laughs> show, isn't it? It's been great having you on. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Another news, Andy has had an unfortunate... No, anyway, um, moving on. <laughs> you had your shot last year. You missed it. I know, I know. All right. So moving on to our next story. This one comes from a CSO online, and the title is Privileged Escalation Explained. Why these flaws are so valuable to hackers. Um, this is, by the way, something that has been uh, bothering me for a long time. And it has to do with the way almost every organization prioritizes vulnerabilities. We've talked about in in the long past some work different uh, organizations have done, and I forget their names at, at this point. That's one of the problems of getting old. Um, that not all, you know, quote severe vulnerabilities are those that are useful to attackers, and. And in fact, if memory serves, it's it's actually you know quite often lower severity on, on the CVSS score. There's lower severity vulnerabilities that are often used to perpetrate successful attacks. And in many cases, it's a it's not just one; it's kind of a chain of vulnerabilities. And this particular article goes through some detail about you know why that is, and you know po- highlights that. Uh, you know, f- for instance, some of the most vulner or most valuable vulnerabilities on on uh, like the Zerodium uh, market are chained, uh, you know, a, a chained sandbox bypass and then a privilege es- uh, privilege escalation. So, you know, one or the other are typically not so 
important, but together they're they're quite important. And also, as as it goes, I, I kind of the going back to the concept of assume breach. In lots of lots of organizations, again, I think this is the reason we we end up being so enamored with CVSS nine and ten vulnerabilities is that we feel like you know the name of the game is keeping them out in the first place but as we've talked about endlessly in the past that's a that's a really 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 hard and nigh impossible thing to do there's just so many different ways uh in and so once you know you, you have to have you have to embrace the whole concept of defense in depth and part of that is you know is addressing privilege escalation vulnerabilities and and so i this the point of this is that you 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 really have to rethink the the deprioritization of privilege escalation relative to um you know to to remote you know like the the remote code execution type vulnerabilities yeah i wonder if this is a symptom of just the complexity of information security abstracted to a level that very busy leadership can get their arms around, right? How do I measure my team's effective? Well, how do I prioritize their work? Go get those seven, eight, nine, ten CVS scores within 72 hours, right? Co- co- completely agree. That's exactly what's going on. Uh, and nobody has the time or the energy to look at the nuance of this sort of thing. And that's where the bad guys can easily dwell is, Hey, you know, again, this is, this is game theory. This is evolution of what works and what doesn't work. So the bad guys are going to find out what works and they're not going to work harder than they have to, to make it work. And so we, as the good guys are trying to adapt to their moves, they're adapting to our moves. And so when you see something like this, it tells me, we have a blind spot and that, you know, but then when I start thinking about that, that blind spot's probably because uh, we're too busy, as is often the case with information security. We, we don't have, we have a ticket-driven culture in, in our IT teams. They're very focused on hitting their metrics and there's very little time for somebody to thoughtfully go, hmm, look at this new thing that applies here, but if you do this, then this, then this, look what they can get. No, nobody's very few people especially in the organizations have the time to do that who then have the influence to drive behavior right you might have some futurists and some folks who are sitting around thinking about that but they're not the ones designing the function of your patch reaction team or your you know whatever you call your folks who are out there applying patches to your environment so it's yeah, well, I mean, the, it's a conundrum. Absolutely, and look, you you end up having to prioritize because you know, and I can say this authoritatively, right? You you end up having to prioritize. There's always more to do in the world of security. You you can you can have, you know, infinitely number infinitely many people, and you're still going to be short. <laughs> there's there's always more to do, and sure. and so you end up having to make value judgments and you know cvss is one of those things that is an objective like you can line up two things and say well we're going to go do this thing first and and that other thing 
So second. are we being led astray by CVS scores? Well, I... Which most people don't use properly because they don't modify it for their environment as you're supposed to. <laughs> yes. I, I, I think... I think CVSS ha- has created some interesting uh, neuroses in in patch management for for organizations, and it's just it, it's not. By the way, it's not necessarily that it's wrong that you should patch a ten before you should patch something that is lower in a, a privilege escalation. But I but I think w- what I s- often see is there's just a lot you know. It, in some cases, significantly more time is afforded for patching um, for patching lower, you know, lower or I should say lesser. Yeah, um, you might have seventy-two hours to patch a ten and thirty days to patch a five. Yeah, exactly, or something like that. Exactly, yeah. and um, you know, but at the same time, the one of the interesting things is not explicitly. I don't think they intended to to, to say this in the article, but it becomes really clear after you actually read it, the number of avenues for privilege escalation on a system is just unreal. Yeah. And, you know, this got me thinking about the zero trust model, which there's a part of me that really likes the concept of zero trust model. But then I think about this kind of stuff that completely subverts the concept because zero trust is somewhat, and, and I'll admit that my understanding is weak, but my understanding of zero trust model is that you're doing a great deal of of security relying upon authentication authorization. And so you're only allowing someone or something or some service to do what it specifically is allowed to do, least privileges. But if I can do a privilege escalation, I break that entire model. And so if that's, you know, a lot of people saying, well, you know, with zero trust, it can, the endpoint or whatever can protect itself because it has really hardened and, and well thought out access control and um, permissions control. Because yeah, we're, so, we're so good at defending against phishing right. emails, right? <laughs> but at that point, if I can do a privilege escalation and I'm only relying on the endpoint to protect itself, potentially, that sort of starts to make me concerned uh and then uh, you know some advocates and i'm not saying i'm a a detractor of zero trust i'm still trying to get my arms around it but some advocates of zero trust would say well yes but then when they try to go lateral they run into the same problem maybe Uh, anyway point being it's not a fully formed thought yet but there's something there that i'm trying to get my arms around of that's great until i can do a privilege escalation and then all bets are off yeah i privilege escalation is i mean i'm sorry um Zero trust is kind of like least privilege, right? It people will do it up to the point it's inconvenient, and and then they'll start making trade-offs that have unintended consequences. And so I think if you know if you were to do a very thorough job of of actually implementing a zero trust model, a your employees would hate you, and 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 b you probably would too late. <laughs> Probably would mitigate many of the uh, you know many of those those attack vectors, but you know point the point remains you're delegating a lot of trust by definition to the endpoint, and if if 
you know, kind of like we've talked about in the past and in, in other cases, you kind of have to assume that somehow, some way, some adversary is going to end up on that system. Then what do you do? So it's a, it's a, you know, this is a, it's a pretty fascinating article uh, that, you know, highlights some of the, the challenges like with, you know, DLL search paths and which is really pedestrian attack but you know they also point out the problem with device drivers especially on windows systems you know how many people view how many how many organizations patch management program addresses device drivers or you know firmware or printers or other iot's or whatever yeah yeah, that, especially all those things that I cannot install endpoint agents on, right? Yeah. Right. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's a it's a very complicated problem, but those those things are are what will you know what will get you, that, especially if it's an Active Directory connected computer. Well, we're just chock full of good news today. Yeah. So they, by the way, they did uh, in, in this article. They, they point out that um, uh, in Inissa released a report. I'm trying to find the specific wording here. That it, that um, privilege escalation vulnerabilities are the sixth most. I think it's the sixth most most common type of vulnerability. But when you map it when you map that against the attack framework it's actually among the most uh used type of vulnerability so pretty um pretty interesting there so don't ignore privilege escalation please indeed and and, and, and by the way you. for the record if you go to read this article uh it does require a free sign in so sorry yeah you can't use your gmail account Otherwise, it's pretty easy. Just saying. You're all you're all elite hacksers, so I'm sure you can get through it. Yep. All right. Then I mean, if there's a if there's a Metasploit framework for reading it, then yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Uh, last story comes from Ars Technica, and the title here is "Multiple CIA Failures Led to the Theft of Agency's Top." secret hacking tools. This is this this is actually I think about a month old now but pretty uh, pretty interesting stuff. This relates to the the big WikiLeaks Vault 7 uh release a couple of years ago, I think 2017. Uh and it is based on a report that was sent between a couple different parts of government. I think parts of the report were redacted, but there was enough enough detail to to glean some interesting bits of information and the one thing that stood out to me was the CIA's elite cyber force has the same sorts of problems that every other organization has with its <laughs> see, prima see, donna IT people that's the exact same thing I had in my notes <laughs> wow they got the same damn problems I've got <laughs> <laughs> and there was also this epic quote in here about um oh i gotta find it uh that yeah 
these shortcomings, and we'll talk about the shortcomings, were emblematic of a culture that evolved over years that too often prioritized creativity and collaboration at the expense of security. This is the same topic we talk about all the time, that balance between being productive and being secure. And, uh, you know, there you go. Same problem in the CIA. I mean, they're just a big bureaucracy at the end of the day, like another big company, but... Yeah, it's just it's it, it was um, it was fascinating to see that they wrestle with the same sorts of issues that the re- you know all the rest of us wrestle with, and and the the a couple of the key points in here is that apparently this uh, this group called the CCI, it was the Cyber Center, or the Center for Cyber Intelligence, ran their missions on a on a uh, you know a dedicated network focused on on you know i guess adversarial operations but they didn't apply the same sorts of controls that were done uh, you know that that were required on the organization the cia's other quote production networks now i i think that's a little unfair uh, because you know i as as anybody who has managed a red team knows you really can't run reasonably you really can't run red team operations from a network that's you know intended to be quote production with all of the requisite controls there has to be some amount of i've been on the flip side of that by the way when your red team folks just want to run riot over your production network it sucks yeah well more all the more reason you don't want them doing that crap on your production network right so you know get over there but the point the point is i think that i do think that it's it was inappropriate or unfair or or whatever however you want to describe it to to expect that they would i i think clearly things didn't work right because we're here talking about it but um i i would expect that a network used for this sort of purpose would have an entirely different set of controls which are designed to allow the missions being executed to proceed and also protect the data. And that's probably a very different set of controls than what the CIA requires on the rest of their production networks. That does not in any way surprise me. Um, and, and by the way, you know, that should always be the case. And, you know, if you have a if you have a an edge case where you're gonna be running pen tests or, or you know whatever from you you need you, you need to set up an environment that is you know, appropriate for that use case you really have to sit down and think about what are the you know what are the the, the different threats and, and and business objectives we have to accomplish or and, and defend against and uh, and then come up with a with a, the right kind of solution um and by the way, it's 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 kind of unclear if this was in fact a network kind of issue, right? Because it's it sounds to me like there were other issues, such as password sharing and the ability to use USB drives, which are probably well. It it looks like there was a lot of lack of security to allow people to do their job easier. Correct. Correct. And you know they had. The proverbial insider threat. Yeah, yeah. So, so they, um, so they, there, there was somebody indicted for 
for this crime. And apparently he, they stole, um, up to 34 terabytes of information. That boggles my mind. But, but if you, if you read very carefully, it's up to 34 terabytes. They actually don't know exactly how much data was taken. They know, they know the, the floor. At least 180 gig. Right. So my suspicion is that this was probably carried out on USB drives. If that was in fact permitted, um, which I think that was also one of the one of the findings, but it's fascinating that in the in in the case or the in the trial for the the person uh, alleged to have done this, uh, they actually they actually used the agency's lax security standards as a defense. You know, like I don't know how you can be so sure my client was the one who perpetrated this crime when you have. You know, you've got such lax standards. Anybody could have done this. Yeah, it looks like they hand, you know, shared admin passwords and shared logins and um, typical stuff that makes it tough to prove it was an individual. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, these are all, and I, you know, it's easy to dog on the CIA because, you know, they haven't. The, the, what st- what happens to them ends up getting published in the news, and what happens to most other companies doesn't get published in the news. So, um, you know, I'm I'm not intending to dog on the CIA. So, you know, that means, by the way, CIA, you can, you know, lay off a little bit. Um. Your third IRS audit is going on, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, it, but I, it's I, the, but this is the same kind of stuff that happens. Yeah. To every organization, I, it, so it's just fascinating. I don't, yeah, I don't hear you dogging on them. I hear you say using it as an example of this is what a lot of people are suffering with. This is the discipline to do it securely gets in the way of productivity. Yeah, and, and where that trade off lies is difficult. Right, and it's fascinating that if you don't do it well, if you you know you you end up with these second order non-obvious issues like if you end up in court trying to prosecute someone for committing crimes you know your the fact that you don't have robust controls in place can actually be used against you that's a that's a pretty interesting development yeah i think yeah by by causing doubt you know but if you what's interesting is let's say that you over rotate into being too secure then people can't do their job and Which, your mission fails. Go- and your mission fails. Right. right. And your mission fails. And it, and I have no idea how the CIA uses these tools. Let me be very, very clear on that. I have no idea. I'm just speculating. But if, to me, if they've got a whole bunch of tools that are for hacking into targets, and you don't want to do it from the CIA network, probably, you know, if you're smart, I'm just thinking out loud here. You've got to then make those tools portable. You've got to take them off net to a non-attributable environment, right? Mm-hmm. So they still have to be portable. They still have to be able to be taken offline. So there's still some way, in my mind, you still have to trust your you know, elite hack source to go use this stuff properly and not leak it. So it's a tough, it's a tough mission. And and it's you know to point. defend the CIA it's a little a bit. Yep. It's it's real easy for folks with an axe to grind to point out all their failures, 
And just like you said, but if you make it, you know, you ramp it up too much, then you fail your mission or you're not, you know, you're not profitable and your business closes or whatever it is. So, you know, we, I think you and I have been in this industry long enough to not be so dogmatic on the security side. If we try to recognize the balance involved with being productive while still being secure to a certain extent, whatever the hell that means. Um, and, and here you're only hearing one side of it, right? Why did you fail? How did you fail? And, but you're not hearing the flip side of what productivity was enhanced by this methodology. Yeah, exactly. it's not a, it's not a great. I'm not saying it's defendable. I'm saying there is always a trade-off when right. when you go down these paths. It's a good point. We don't know if some of these decisions that look on its surface to be super problematic were conscious decisions, conscious value trade-offs to enable some, you know, something that needed to be done and. Uh, you know that we won't know because it's probably it's probably classified tradecraft type stuff. Um, but again, this is the this is the kind of I, 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 just thought, I thought this was fascinating because it mirrored so closely the same sorts of challenges that many businesses uh, wrestle with all the time. So um, you know, interesting interesting stuff. Hopefully, you know. Most organizations never end up with different parts of Congress writing to each other about your breach, uh, but you know that's I think life in in the CIA. Indeed, indeed, it's it's always tough when you fail. Yeah, that's right. It's great while it works. All right, well that's the the show for this evening. I. Do appreciate everybody's attention. Thank you to our Patreon donors who continue to hang on with us. I sincerely hope and expect that we'll be back on a more regular uh, schedule now. Um, How many times have we said that? We'll see. Uh, Well, uh, quite a few, quite a few, and I'm sure, I'm sure I'll fail again. But um, we will (laughs) get back on the wagon. We'll keep getting back on. On, on the horse. Last year was my fault. This year it's your fault. I'm just glad it's not my fault anymore. <laughs> All right. Um, just a reminder: you can follow Andy on Twitter at Lurg. It's L-E-R-G. You can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink, uh, and you can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. And uh, you can get links to all the stories we talked about on our website at www.defensive security.org and with that we'll talk again real soon have a great week everybody bye see ya